Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 142 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Katie Brower. Katie has a fascinating life story, and that's one of the things that drew me to her. She started skiing as a baby in a sling on her mom's back before she could even walk. She grew up in a skiing family, and at the age of 17, she became a professional snowboarder in Australia. She's originally from Australia. So she had a lot of passion. She had a lot of fire. She obviously knew how to find her way in life, but snowboarding really took a toll on her body. She had, in the course of seven years of being a world-class competitive athlete, she had seven surgeries, including several on her knees. And she talks us through that in the podcast. So even though she had this seemingly amazing career, she was really struggling mentally through each injury with the recovery process, not just the physical recovery process, but with the mental and emotional recovery process. And that's how she got deeply into yoga. She started yoga as just a physical practice, you know, something to help her rehab. But with each injury and each surgery, she drew more and more deeply from yoga and eventually completely changed her path and completely changed her life. So now she is a yoga educator, a mentor at the intersection of yoga and entrepreneurship. She's the creator of an online growth incubator called the Yoga Professional Incubator to help yoga teachers make a difference without burning out and becoming broke. So we talk all about Katie's life story. We also get into, toward the end of the conversation, we talk about money, which is a topic I've never covered on the podcast at all. I've thought about it since the very beginning, and I just haven't really found the right person. So we dip our toe into that a little bit. I think it's an important conversation and an interesting conversation, and I like what Katie has to say. I'd be interested to hear what you all think of it. Katie has been a speaker for TEDx. She's been featured in Forbes, Origin, Mantra, Guy MTV, and more. I think you're going to love her. She's also created a special download for you that you can get. I'll put it on the show notes page so you can find it at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 142. And if you're enjoying the podcast, I always so appreciate it from the bottom of my heart when you write a review or give us a five-star rating. Thanks so much. Enjoy the interview. So. Katie, I want to start years ago. You were a world-class competitive athlete. And I think that so many of us, I mean, myself included, I look at competitive athletes and I'm just in awe and fascinated. And perhaps I glorify their life a little bit. And so you were a professional snowboarder in Australia and you went through some really massive accidents and you kind of discovered that it it didn't feed your soul. But what I want to know is just kind of the story of how you started, how old you were, what was it that you loved about the sport when you first got into it? I guess I'll start by saying, because I'm sure that there's listeners that are like, wait, they have snow in Australia? (laughs) And the answer is yes. Our mountains are very small, but there is snow. So my grandpa, my mom's dad, was European and he very much a huge, huge skier. He was actually one of the sort of pioneers of skiing in Australia. And my mom, very passionate about skiing. So we sort of grew up skiing as a family. I think the first 
time I went on the mountain, I was under two and I was like in a sling on my mom's back, which is highly illegal these days. But so that was sort of how we got into it. My brother and sister also skiers. And in my early teens, I really sort of went off the rails. I got kicked out of multiple high schools. I got mixed up in the wrong crowd, got into drinking and drugs, and I was really lost and in a lot of pain. And I had what I can only call as a spiritual awakening and woke up in the middle of the night and just was like, this is not what I'm doing with my life. Like, this is not what I'm here to do. And I moved out of Sydney and sort of abandoned all of my friends, moved to the mountains and threw myself into snowboarding. So I had, I'd not done it at that time. Like I'd skied and it was kind of, you know, 1995 snowboarding was not like it is now. There wasn't a lot of people doing it, but there was like kind of this renegade group. So I was like, well, this kind of aligns. And I did it and I liked it and I was pretty good at it. And clearly you're pretty good at it. Well, it was kind of a fluke. I mean, really how I became like professional. I had after a season, friends of mine were like, you know, you should really start doing some contests. And I was like, really? And at the time, the world champion was actually an Australian woman, Marguerite Cosentini. And I was like, okay, I'm going to enter a contest. And she was in the contest. And I did start it in border cross, which is border cross is a little bit like BMX racing. And there's four to six people back then it was six people at a time would go down a course of berms and jumps and different obstacles. And it was like a kamikaze, like the top two or three people to make it to the bottom would go on to the next round. And she was in that contest and I ended up winning. And I was like, whoa, maybe I am good at this. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that was just a fluke. And then the next contest I did, she was there as well. And I did well and, and happened to beat her again. And I was like, that was really the second time I was like, okay, maybe I actually should pursue this. And things just very, it wasn't like I tried to get sponsors. They sort of approached me and then all of a sudden it was like, whoa, okay, this is like a legitimate thing that I could pursue. And so I did. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then got to compete on the world tour and kind of gallivant around the world freezing my butt off. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it sounds like it got you out of and you were young right when you when you moved yeah I was 16 okay I was 16 so yeah. it sounds like it got you out of you know your teenage rebellion and just kind of whatever inner struggles you were going through at that phase and how long did you tour and snowboard professionally I did for seven years so it really gave me a focal point you know, much like meditation and this whole practice of yoga gave me a focal point to channel my energy and to pull myself into, which was much healthier than the other stuff that I had been doing. So in many ways, it like really saved me. Yeah, it sounds like it really brought you out of that, like in a, it kept you focused and active and strong and outdoors. I mean, those are all amazing things, but it sounds like the injuries were tough. Can you talk about that a little bit? So I snowboarded professionally for seven years and 
just to context what it means to be professional in a sport is that you're getting paid enough money to do your thing that you don't have to have, quote unquote, a real job, right? So I was traveling around and competing and I did border cross and then sort of transitioned into half pipe and slope style. And every year of those seven years, I happened to have like a catastrophic injury of some sort. So I underwent some that were more serious than others, but I had seven surgeries over those seven years, mostly knee surgeries. So I did my ACL three different times. Oh my gosh. I didn't even know that was possible. Oh, neither did I until I did it. Yeah. The first time I did it, it wasn't really that big of a deal because I didn't have anything to compare it to. So it was like a very, just a clean tear of my ACL and they did a repair and, you know, I did my six months rehab and that was, that was that. And then the second time I did it, it was my other knee, my left knee. And it was, I really, uh, oh, it was not a fun experience when it happened. It was this very catastrophic accident where I landed into the upside of a gap jump, literally like splat. (laughs) And I just blew everything apart in my knee. I mean, I chipped my femur bone and my ACL, LCL, PCL, and MCL. And it was was actually um, during a contest. And you know that thing that's called a bystander? Like where, like I'm on the ground screaming and all these people are standing around, but no one was coming to help me. Wow, really? Yeah, really people were just in shock. Yeah. And so the injuries, they really, particularly that particular injury, that was really, you know, I'd been introduced to yoga and was doing yoga for stretching and sort of cross training, but I hadn't gotten into the deeper layers of yoga. Mm-hmm. And that injury was, the gift of that was that I, I got introduced to, you know, meditation and energy and these more subtle realms of healing and trauma Mm -hmm. because I was completely traumatized emotionally by the accident itself and sort of the aftermath of the accident. And also where I was in my career, it had a much bigger impact on my mental state. And during that surgery, it actually even though I was under general anesthesia, when I came out of recovery, I said to my knee surgeon, who I had a great relationship with because he'd already done several surgeries for me, I said, I recalled a conversation that happened in the surgery room where he had brought in all of these interns and shown them how bad my knee was and said that I would never come back from this injury. And he he went like, those white, and I said you really think I'm not coming back? And he was like, wait, what are you talking about? And I said, that's what you said when I was in surgery. And he said, there's just so much damage. So there was a lot of stuff around that injury, which I learned sort of going through the process of recovery, one, how powerful the mind is, um, and two, the magic of yoga. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. I want to just back up for a second. You said that that, that injury had obviously like a big impact on your mental state. 
Can you talk about that? Like, was it that you had been thinking it was about time for you to stop racing or, and it was just this kind of confirmation or was it just grief or what was that like? No, it was more of where I was. I was like on a really good kind of run and peak in my career and I had momentum and, you know, anytime anyone gets injured in a sport for me, there was this like, oh my gosh, everybody's going to get so far ahead of me. How mm. am I going to catch up? You know, the progression is going to keep happening. Um, so there's that FOMO and then really the self-doubt, which was like, well, if this top surgeon thinks that this is the end, is it really the end? And simultaneously the rehab that had worked for my first reconstruction was not working for the second. And that was really where it became apparent to me of like the state of my mind and my emotional mind was actually impacting my recovery. And so it required me to do more than just the physical rehab. And that was what was you know, challenging and interesting. And there was just more to navigate. And there definitely was not any part of me that was like, okay, this is the end for me. It was more, it lit this fire of just like, oh, well, let me show you and I'm going to get back and I'm going to get back on the world tour, which I did. It took a lot longer. It took about 18 months to get there, but I did. And I progressed past and I, you know, started doing well again and all of that. And then I blew my knee out a third time. Mm which I just thought was a joke. I mean, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is ridiculous. It was a couple of years later, but by that stage, I was like, oh, I've, I know this rodeo. So that injury wasn't, wasn't as bad. It wasn't until, you know, a couple of years after that, I dislocated my elbow. This was quite a graphic injury in terms of, I was, if people are familiar with snowboarding, they've watched it in the Olympic and the slope style, is there, there was this like, rail on the top of a shark fin of snow and we'd been doing it all day we were filming some stuff and it was the last day last run of the day and I went up and my board went one way and my body kind of went the other way and my arm went into the uprights that were holding the rail up and my body kept going and so my elbow dislocated and I broke my arm and I kind of tumbled down And because it was the end of the day and I was the last one in this group of girls, I was like, there was no one there to help me. And I didn't want to wait for the ski patrol because one, nobody knew that I was there and two, they take so long to get up there. So I ended up snowboarding down, got to the bottom and passed out when I saw my friend and got taken to the emergency room. You snowboarded to the bottom? I did. Yeah, this was in Breckenridge and it was a very extremely more painful injury than the than the knee surgeries were. And it was after that when I came back from that and I was back on the tour, that was when it was just sort of like mm, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. I was at an event and the weather was bad, the light was low, it was really icy, the jumps were really big, and I remember being scared for the first time. Like I'd experienced fear many, many, many times, like every day on the hill I would experience fear, but I was always able to redirect and reorient my attention to 
a confidence in myself and my skill. Whereas this time I was like, this is a bad idea. I don't want to do this. Like I'm going to get hurt. And why do I keep doing this? Like, Mm. what is it that's driving me to do this? And that was, that really opened up this, this recognition of, yeah, wait, why am I doing this? Right. That sounds like a big awakening moment. Yeah. So did you figure it out? And that was that when you started to, to leave the sport? I was under obligation and contract to finish out the season. So I fulfilled all of those requirements, but I knew in my heart of hearts that I was done. Um, and that was, yeah, that was, that was kind of it. Hmm. It was just like, yeah, I just don't, not really into it anymore. And it also, what was interesting about it too, which I had been sort of contemplating was it wasn't the satisfaction that I thought that I would get from doing a really good run or landing a trick or winning a contest. Although it was satisfying in the moment, it was like really fleeting. And that was also something was, it was like, I was always going after the next thing. And I was like, well, wait, isn't there always going to be a next thing? Like, I feel like I'm climbing this mountain and I've gotten, I mean, I got to the top 10 in the world and I was like, but I don't feel any different than I did when I started on the inside. That is the story of many of what we all go through. I think it's like part of the human condition until you can find something to help you be more present and be where you are right now. Mm -hmm. So at that point, did you have kind of a deeper yoga practice established at that point, or was it still more of a physical practice? No, I did, because what had helped me through that second knee reconstruction and that trauma was sort of diving into kind of the quote-unquote more spiritual aspects of the practice. Mm-hmm. And so when I retired, I had been you know, craving for years and years to go to India and spend more time in Southeast Asia. And so I did. I went and traveled for many months. And during, I think it was my second trip to India, I was in the South in the state of Karnataka. And I had been recommended to go to this place. It was essentially, it's a retreat center. It's not really a formal retreat center, but it's some land that this German guy owns that essentially provides you with food and shelter. So you sleep in these like rock formation kind of cave. They're not like caves where you're going underground, but they're like rock shelters, Mm -hmm. natural formations in the rock. And he provides you food and you do your own practice or whatever you want to do there. And I went on my own. I'd been traveling for many months and had had all these really amazing, insightful experiences and been studying different modalities. And I wanted to go somewhere to just integrate. And so I was on my own. I did the first couple of weeks in silence and he would just come by my cave in the afternoon and say, Hariyom. And I would say, um, to make sure that I was still alive. Yeah. (laughs) And I had this, this afternoon where I was just sitting on the rocks, sort of looking out at the landscape and, it was like the thing that I'd been searching for my whole life, really, but definitely in my snowboarding career, it, I started having this experience of 
there's no other way that I could describe it other than like like feeling the universe moving through me and this I just tears started sort of dreaming streaming down my face and and I just felt connected like connected to myself and connected to something bigger and it was so visceral and so it was kind of like this huge exhale Mm. and a settling and a softening and and that was like a very pivotal moment in my life for sure because ever since that moment no matter what is happening no matter like how big the shit is hitting the fan or whatever challenges I'm up against I'm able to like rest into that bigness yeah you never forget it you never forget it it's the best thing ever (laughs) the best thing ever yeah and for most of us, it comes from being in silence, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not not to say that you can't feel it in other other ways or other places, but silence sets the conditions so well for it. So you you went to India, and mm-hmm. then did you consciously say to yourself that like, you're you're such a go getter as a person? Did you? consciously say like okay I am retired I am going to make a career shift and I'm going to pursue this yoga thing or did you just kind of did it happen less intentionally than that more organically than that yeah no it had already happened because when I was snowboarding I had all of this like spare time and at the time I was living in Vail Colorado and all of my friends had proper jobs like they were ski instructors or snowboard instructors during the day and then they would work in restaurants at night and when I was training I was on the hill for three four hours in the morning and then kind of free for the rest of the day so one of the cool things that happened from being injured all the time is that space opened up for me to be able to study different things that I was interested in so I went to massage school and I did a two-year Pilates program And I did like yoga immersions and yoga trainings and then Reiki and like all these different kinds of things. So because of the fact that I had when I was in town and not on the road competing or doing photo shoots or whatnot, I had these chunks of time that I felt like I was wasting. So I, during my snowboarding career, just out of pure passion, started teaching and started working with clients and that type of thing. And it was really flexible. So by the time I transitioned out of snowboarding and retired, I already had a whole thing going on. So it was just this very natural progression into teaching. I want to talk about kind of the shift in working with your body the way that you did in your sport versus working with your body in yoga. And I'm really curious, like, do you ever miss the adrenaline of snowboarding because you, uh, I mean some of the things you're describing like they definitely take the risk taking gene part of a person you know part of your personality so is that ever something that you you pine for well I will say that there are different ways that you could experience that for instance like me doing a Facebook live are you kidding me? That is like pretty much the same as standing at the top of like an 80 foot jump. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? And so I think in different ways, like I push myself in different ways and get out of my comfort zone in different ways. And, you know, prior to us jumping on 
this call, we were chatting about how difficult for me it is to ask for support. So for instance, prior to this, I just sent an email out asking for support from someone. And it was very much viscerally exactly the same of just like, oh my gosh, there's this adrenaline rush. I mean, Mm. being able to observe. And so I get that rush just in different ways that isn't likely to cause me injury and land me in the hospital. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I mean, you went through enough that you, that there's probably very visceral aspects that you do not miss about. Yeah. But that said, you know, when I get on the hill, because I tend to try to get up to the mountains a couple of times each season, when I'm on the hill or when I'm surfing and I haven't been in a while, it's like that remembering of like, oh, gosh, yes. Like, I remember this, yeah, the, the thrill of going off a jump or being in really great snow and in nature or being on a really good wave it's definitely yeah it's like a drug since you did go through so many knee surgeries in particular you know how does that affect your your yoga practice how how does your body feel there's definitely things that um sort of pop up like my right hip a snowboarding stance for people that are listening like your feet aren't just parallel. Like my front foot's turned out 15 to 20 degrees forward. And then my back foot was at a negative three degrees. And then, so you're on your board sideways, but then your torso and your shoulders are turned down the hill. So there's this like really kind of awkward torque Mm -hmm. in the body and how that shows up in my body now is like, I am very tight through the right hip flexor and my right psoas my knees specifically, like if I'm sitting for extended periods of time, meditation or just teaching, like in trainings or whatnot, or as a student, when I'm in trainings myself, my knees get really stiff. But for the most part, I mean, my body, I think that yoga and the the asana practice has, I can't believe what I'm able to do given what my body has been through. Yeah. But my asana practice is pretty mellow at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. curious since I, I've never been athletic. <laughs> do you do you feel like the inner voice and the way that you talk to your body and like treat your body on a daily basis and regard your body is different than the way that it was when you were competing? This is a really good question. Because for me, so and I think this is like a really interesting inquiry for anyone to really look at is when like the way in which we operate and move through the world, do we tend to go into a place of override to get what needs to get done done? 
or do we disassociate? Mm -hmm. And as an athlete, you know, now having the awareness that I have now looking back, there was definitely a combination of both of those things, but more so override. So I was very aware of the sensations that were happening in my body or the discomfort that was happening. And I would just kind of like push through. And that pattern is very much present in my day-to-day life that I am very aware of. And currently that's the thing that I'm really working on is like, okay, my tendency is to push and to be like, yep, I know that's there. And you know what? I'm just going to like, my she willpower is going to push me through this. And someone shared with me the other day of like, okay, you need to rework what push means. And she said like, pray until something happens. Hmm. It was like the opposite of push. I'm like, okay, yeah, push, pray until something happens. So I would say that there's still that sort of echo of habit that happens in my day to day, but I'm much more aware of it. Right. And you're aware that it doesn't necessarily serve you. Mm -hmm. And it tends to show up for me less in what I'm doing with my body, but more in work. Hmm. When I'm doing a yoga class or whatever, I'm definitely not pushing myself physically. I'm just enjoying whatever is being offered and the experience I'm having in my body. But that push really comes from the way in which I push myself with work and, and doing. Oh, I can relate to that so much, so much. I think that there we are just sort of a a culture of pushers. <laughs> I mean, there's obviously some upsides to, you know, being a person who can get shit done, but not at the yeah, not at the expense of when it when it comes to the expense of paying attention to what's what's happening, that's when it gets it gets really tricky. Yeah, and when it becomes the habit, mm. you know, I think that that's like anything habits uh, habits die hard mm-hmm. so much of the practice for me is like is undoing unraveling undoing stopping the doing I have challenged myself last year to once a quarter take a few days where I just do a solo retreat last year and every time I did it I was like it was like this remembering of like oh god this is so nice why do I wait for it to be each quarter to do this? Like, why am I not, you know, a retreat each day? Yeah. You know, in a way I am, but in this, they're so micro. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a different normal. And you also have a little, a little girl. So that's, those breaks are short. (laughs) Oh man, it's full on. Yeah. Do you do yoga around her in front of her or do you like to do it on your own? Um, more sitting. I mean, we'll mm-hmm. do like pratipana, like, you know, just like cows and side bends and just sort of like dynamic kind of movement um, together. And then she'll often come in when I'm sitting on my cushion and I try to get up early in the morning, not every morning, but some mornings and she'll wake up and I'll be at the foot of the bed. So yeah, she's definitely exposed. Yeah, same with me. My my kid has just only just recently started to really stay calm while I'm practicing. Like she just, it used to just always be that she would do whatever she could to get me to stop doing it, mm-hmm. just distract me or just 
but now she'll like if I'm meditating, she'll put her head in my lap like a little cat, which is kind of cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So now I now I actually will practice in front of her, sit in front of her. But before it was just so frustrating. I was like, leave me alone. <laughs> and is she five? She's six. She's six. She's six. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's she's getting to be like, you know, kind of a bigger kid. Okay, so I have that to look forward to then. Yes. So Aspen's three and a half, yeah. Yes, you definitely have that. It's pretty awesome. And it, and it just makes you feel good because it makes you feel like, like you said, they're just getting the modeling. They're mm-hmm. just getting the exposure. Whereas I used to literally tuck myself away, you know, and close the door, barricade the door so she wouldn't come in. <laughs> hey, you got to do what you got to do. You do. You really do. You got to keep your keep your own uh, oxygen mask on so you've now been teaching for how many years well I started in 2001 so it's I started practicing in 97 98 Uh um and then I guess I taught a little like a little before that but like around 2001 2001 it's really it's really like that one major career shift has really worked for you, which is, which is really cool. And you have an online program called the Yoga Professional Incubator, which I'm really curious about. I, I think it's a great idea. It combines leadership, business, and personal development. And I think that that is, especially at this phase of having so many yoga teachers out there and yoga being first, you know, in such, in, in a certain way, such, such big business, I think it's really wise to approach it this way. But tell me why you created it and what you hope people get out of it. Yeah, sure. So just to loop back to when you said, when you asked about like sort of the transition from snowboarding to into yoga was one of the things, you know, when I did finally hang up my boots and it was like, okay, like I'm doing this, this is what I'm doing now. It wasn't something that I was doing in combination with the fact that I was making an income elsewhere. One of the first things was just like, okay, I have absolutely zero interest in being broke. (laughs) So I'm going to pursue yoga teaching as a career and I'm not going to be broke doing it. And what that did in the beginning was it, it just required me to sit down and think about, okay, like what is my long-term strategy? Like, and how am I going to quote unquote, make it and be successful? And I think that that's one of the things that athletics and being an athlete allowed me to hone the skill of looking far out at goals and then being able to reverse engineer of how to actually achieve those goals and what needed to happen in the interim. And so what I realized, and I experienced like financial success very early on, within a couple of years, it was, you know, I had, was paying my mortgage. I'd bought a place at that point and I was traveling four months of the year for fun. Wow. I had kind of curated this life that I was like, okay, this is cool. Like I'm doing what I love and I have quite a lot of free time and, as the years passed and as I grew and then, you know, I moved from Colorado to Florida and the scene of yoga was different down there than it is here in California. And it's almost 10 years that I moved here to California. It was really realizing like, wow, my experience has not been a common one. 
you know, most teachers out there are really struggling. Mm -hmm. They're struggling in a variety of ways and financial is just one of them. And that was really what hit home for me of like, okay, well, apparently everybody doesn't think like me and hasn't done the things that I've done and put the things in place. So that was the catalyst for me to create the incubator, which is this six month program and really teach teachers, you know, the fundamentals of mindset and relationship to money and systems and processes and strategy and like basic legal fundamentals for your business to really give you that platform to launch from. Mm-hmm. And as we know, in a 200-hour yoga teacher training, there's like maybe a couple of hours on how to actually, you know, the business of yoga. Mm-hmm. And there's some 500 hours offer a module on it, but there's nothing that's that I've seen out there. There's things popping up now that are that are a little bit more ro- robust, but this is really um, really taking teachers through that and meeting them where they're at because people, teachers that come through the incubator, there's some teachers that have just graduated from teacher training, and then there's like seasoned teachers that have been teaching for five, eight, 10, 12 years that know that this is their passion and their purpose, but they're like, I mean, how do I make this work? So Mm. that's what I happen to have great skill at doing. And I happen to love it as well. And I love being able to see people really step into their power and into their confidence and out of their comfort zone Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. a supported way, not in a negligent way and not in a reckless way but in a really skillful, calculated, intelligent way. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. There is this assumption when, when people are starting out, okay, I'll just teach as many classes as I can in a week and I'll take whatever class times I can get because I'm a new teacher. I'm not going to get, you know, 630 on a Wednesday night or Saturday morning. And so they kind of work themselves just till they're ground down. You know, they just, working, driving around class after class after class. And and it's also hard for yoga teachers to negotiate salary because yeah. there's usually a cap or there's usually just a way a studio is run. So can you walk me through a little bit of like how you help people with that grind? Sure. First of all, like that's the biggest mistake. And that's, it's the mistake that most teachers make, as you say. You know, classes are really important in your repertoire of offerings because they create a connection point um, with students. And particularly if you're a new teacher, they give you the opportunity to hone your skills and develop as a teacher. So they're necessary, but you really want to look at kind of the bigger arc of your offering and the different ways in which you can offer what you do and then what you can charge for those offerings. You know, ultimately we want to work towards a place where we're getting our maximum financial reward for the time that we're putting in. And classes are just, there's always going to be a cap and it's always going to be minimal. But as you can see, you know, they're important to do. Like I still teach a few classes each week Mm -hmm. and I don't teach them for the money because it's not a good use of my time if that were the reason that I'm teaching them. I'm Mm -hmm. teaching them to be able to create a connection point for 
students to build relationship and rapport to then usher the, the right people and the, the demographic into other offerings that I have that better exchange in money for time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I think the, the thing for yoga teachers is to think like yoga classes, are, there's value in them, but think beyond teaching classes mm -hmm. and putting a strategy in place to be able to move beyond classes and being disciplined in taking action on that strategy and on that plan. And oftentimes what's most supportive to that is having a mentor, is having a mentor that has been there, that's done that, that has your best interests in mind. That's, you know, not just going to take your money because they're trying to pay their bills, which I see a lot of. Mm -hmm. And that really has the skill and the expertise to bring out the best in you as an individual and what it is that you can offer that's really unique mm -hmm. and then package it in a way that's going to support you and your students. That's great. And, you know, you and I emailed about this a little bit back and forth. I think that a lot of it too is that yoga teachers have money blocks. There's just some guilt associated with focusing on anything beyond, you know, the survival finances. Mm -hmm. There just seems to be some guilt and shame around money. Do you see that as well? Oh, I think it's for everyone, not just yoga teachers. Like yeah. I would love to do a study where, you know, there's thousands of people in a room, they're all hooked up to electrodes and you know, guide them in a, in a few rounds of deep breathing. And then track on a monitor what happens when you say money yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I think the majority of people when they hear the word money it activates a charge in the system which results in contraction hmm. whether that is because there's shame around money whether there's been negligence around money there's you know, being irresponsibility or there's a lack of or whatever it is. I don't think there are a lot of people out there that when you say money, there's this expansion that happens in the energy body and the breath body and the, the mind and the emotion. And I think that that's fundamentally really interesting because if we are connected to this principle of Sri, which is flow, things can't flow when there's a state of contraction. Hmm. they're flowing true. abundantly when there's a state of expansion and so I think just bringing and being in conversation around money is the first step the culture in Australia tends to be at least when I left look I left over 20 years ago but and maybe it was just my family and maybe it was just the people that I was around all the way in which I moved through the world. But like, for me, there's no, like to ask the question of like, how much do you get paid for that class? Or how much did you make from that workshop? Or like how many people came on retreat and what was the add on? Like, what did you end up making out of the retreat? Those questions to me are not taboo. Like, but it seems that that's a very uncomfortable, oh, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's not polite to say that. Right. It's like, but why? Why can't we be in conversation around this? Like, yeah. it's just money. Yeah. It's 
it's the the story and the labeling that we put on it put on it if you know or if someone says like hey i made a hundred thousand dollars or i made this it's like oh they're boasting right you know it's like no it's just the facts of the facts i made this much money that doesn't make me good or bad or right or wrong you know so i think that being in conversation is actually something that's really liberating and in the incubator there's a module that we go into which initially creates a lot of contraction for participants of just like <laughs> Wait, what? Um, and then the result is you know when you go into that contraction and you really look at stuff and start cleaning up stuff and get connected with just the truth of what's there mm-hmm. the result is like liberation and expansion and then of course from that state of expansion is flow mm-hmm. so it's pretty it's pretty cool. So <laughs> my assistant told me to read, hi, Erica, thanks for the recommendation, to read Jen Sincero's You Are a Badass at Making Money. And I did. And it's reminding me so much of what you're saying. I didn't even really realize I had some of the embarrassment and guilt that I had about like wanting to make my own money. And there's this one part in the right in the beginning of the book where I was in an airport for part of the time I was reading it. And I in, I intentionally did not like hide the book in my purse. It's bright green. It's, you know, huge writing. And she says in the beginning of the book, like probably many of you are embarrassed to even be reading this book in public. <laughs> oh, so funny. It's, so it's, just, it's just, it is a taboo subject. I, I think it's, you know, it's so many things, but I think it's like when you are raised with a mentality that, like where you don't feel deserving, you feel like there's sort of, it's, there's sort of like a limited amount in the world. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Like when you said, um, something you said triggered this in me when you said like, why can't someone just say like, Oh, I made a hundred thousand dollars without it being boasting. It's like, because there's a feeling of maybe lack in the, in the person who feels that it's boasting instead of feeling like, Oh, well they made a hundred thousand dollars. And that means money's out there. It's abundant. It's just like energy. And, you know, I could, if that's, if that was my goal, I could do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that, that's actually a really good, a good point because what I have found in my own experience is, you know, when I'm doing my thing, when I'm moving through my day, I'm just, I am who I am and I feel confident in who I am and comfortable in who I am. And I am clear on what my intention is. And me being who I am has one of two effects on people. That is, it either inspires them and lights a fire under their ass, or it intimidates them. And both of those are okay, right? Because there's still good information there for the receiver of deeper inquiry or whatnot. And and I think for me, when I look at some of my greatest inspirations or when people share with me that, oh, I made such and such, as long as it's not bullshit, because mm-hmm. I've I've read and I've heard people say, well, I'm making this much money and my internal radar goes off and my intuition is like, no, you're not, you're lying. <laughs> That's not inspiring, by yeah. the way. Yeah. But if it is in the truth, that there's that felt sense that it's like, yeah, it really opens up what's possible and like, okay, cool. Yeah. I'm, 
Yes. You know what I mean? And I, but I think just having more conversation about it. I think so too. Is, and also realizing that we go through seasons in our life with everything and with money. Mm-hmm. When I left Vail, Colorado after snowboarding and being there for several years post snowboarding, and I owned a condo there and I had another place that I bought in Australia on the beach with my brother and I had all this money in the bank and I went to Florida. I followed a guy down there and three years later, I had sold both of my properties. I'd blown through hundreds of thousands of dollars and we broke up and I was like, holy crap. I like have boxes of things oh my gosh and there was so much shame for me to process around that that what happened was I kind of turned my back on all of these systems and strategies and the way in which I would kind of do my money stuff because I didn't want to deal with the reality of looking at my bank account and being like what have I done you know until I was Uh, about a year and a half, it took about a year and a half where I was like, okay, I'm like all of my best practices that have served me so well through my life, I'm not doing. And why am I not doing it? And it's because I was ashamed. I was, there was grief around the loss of the way in which I handled money in that relationship. And, you know, because at the end of it, I'd sold both of my property. I think I mentioned that. Anyway, and it wasn't until I sat with it and really looked it all in the eye that I was able to go, okay, begin again. And I put my strategies back into practice and saved up and got my shit together and then bought my place out here in California. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's, that's also supportive to know that we go through seasons. Yeah, hugely. I mean, I mean I'm sure that that experience you know, as hard as it was. And as, like you said, as, you know, bad as it felt, it also showed you that you can get through that and start over again. And for teachers out out there that are listening, you know, it's like, oh, well, she's been teaching for so long and she's so much further ahead. Well, when I moved to California, I knew no one. So essentially I was beginning again. It was kind of like, you know, coming out of, teacher training when you're just beginning because I didn't have any relationships here. I didn't know anyone. Nobody knew me. And it was very much that basic fundamental of like building relationships in the community and kind of setting myself up. And in a lot of ways, I was starting from ground zero financially. And it is, it was just like, oh, okay, well, I've done it. And that's happened a couple of times in my life where it's just like, okay, this is where I'm at. And you know what? I made money and and I lost money and now I'm making money again. Right. And that that is just really the ebb and the flow of life. Thank you for talking about money with me. (laughs) Because I've I've been thinking for a long time on the podcast of figuring out someone to talk to. And because I just think it's, it's a, difficult it's such a difficult subject for yoga teachers and I want yoga teachers to thrive just like you do you know I want people to it's not volunteer work like you deserve to be valued and yes that's how I feel yes and and one last point on that is like when I moved out here to California 10 years ago and I I mean I would have days where I was like oh my gosh what am I doing like 
well, you know what, if it doesn't work out, I could just go get a job at Starbucks, mm-hmm. you know, like, because I think that that's also when I have teachers either coming through teacher training or teachers that go through the incubator program and they're like, oh, but you know, you, you must never experience self-doubt and you're so confident. And it's like, well, no, of course I have those moments. We all have those moments where it's like, wait, what am I doing? You know? And that's when I get back on my cushion and I'm like, okay, what am I doing? Yeah. Okay. Let me get connected. And because it's not, there's ups and downs and yeah. Yeah. But it's good work. It is good work. It is good work. Well, thanks so much, Kitty. Is there anything else I, that you want to talk about before we wrap up? Oh my gosh. If we do, we could do a whole nother podcast on actual like money. I love talking about, I love money and I love talking about money. And I just, I think that you can be spiritually connected and be financially abundant. And that's what I'm extremely passionate about supporting others in having that they don't need to be mutually exclusive. You can have both. Yeah. I like that. I like it a lot. And I agree. I a hundred percent agree just for the record folks. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Katie. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story. Oh, thanks so much for having me. What a treat. Thanks as always for listening. I will put Katie's free download on the show notes page. It is a worksheet about skillful leadership and you can find it at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 142. I will also put a link to Jen Sincero's book, which I really enjoyed and helped me get over some of my own personal money blocks and kind of embrace the value of actually valuing my skills. Does that make sense? Let me know. You can always find me on Instagram at Andrea Ferretti. And until next week, enjoy your practice. <music>